Well, if you will, open me in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, as I say each week, this is a small book tucked in the Minor Prophets, the quickest way to get there, to go to the Gospel of Matthew, turn back four books, you'll be there. Zephaniah chapter 3. We have, of course, been making our way through this uh, book of Zephaniah, and over the last several weeks we have seen both pronouncements of judgment being given, uh, directed towards the nation of Judah, and we have also seen uh, those judgments being directed towards all of the nations, and mixed in with those uh, promises of judgment to come have also been uh, promises of of redemption, and uh, this pattern continues in the book of uh, Zephaniah chapter 3. As we pick up there this morning, we are in a passage today that is largely focused on a universal judgment that is to come against all the nations. And here in this text that we'll look at this morning, Zephaniah is specifically giving a diagnosis of the decay of the nation of Judah and the reasons why judgment is coming upon them, and judgment is ultimately coming upon the whole world. And it's instructive for us as well as we think about our own society, our own nation, and the reasons uh, why things are happening, uh, the the reasons why there is a a great moral decay in our our own land. As we we look at this prophetic word from Zephaniah, I think it will give us some, some insight into the reasons why. God gives the people over to to judgment. And uh, so, as I said, we'll look this morning at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, and we'll begin by uh, reading the text uh, together. Zephaniah, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Zephaniah is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning He shows forth His justice. Each dawn He does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me 
you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for Me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them My indignation. All My burning anger For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, all throughout Your Word, You gave warnings. You spoke to your people, and you spoke to the nations through your prophets. And you gave them messages to give, some of which were hopeful messages of latter days to come, promises of a future redemption of the world, promises of the coming Messiah and a day when all of the nations would worship you. But there are, of course, many messages that you gave to your prophets to give to the world that were not promises of hope, but were promises of judgment in response to the sins that had stacked upon each other, in response to the nations and your people in particular turning away from you. And in the history of Israel and Judah, Lord, we ought to learn lessons. We ought to learn the consequences of abandoning You. And we ought to learn this lesson for ourselves as individuals that if we are those who reject the Lord, if we are those who worship idols, who do not submit ourselves to the one true God, there will be judgment for our idolatry and all of our wickedness that flows from it. But we also ought to learn the lesson of what happens to nations when they reject You, when they abandon You, and when they turn to idolatry. And so, Lord, I pray for our time this morning as we consider this message from Zephaniah given so long ago that as he diagnosed the problem with his own kinsmen, the nation of Judah, Lord, that we might also learn the lesson of what happens in our own society when we abandon the Lord. And I pray also, Lord, that You would Instruct us in what our ultimate response is to be as we live in the midst of a people of unclean lips and as we ourselves are stained with unclean lips. So instruct us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we all know, there has... uh, There has never been a time 
when we could look at a particular culture or a particular nation and say that it has reached perfection. There is no nation that we can point to. There is no time in history that we can point to and say, this was a time when there was no sin in the land. Even nations that we might look at and admire from the past, nations, cultures that we might commend as having qualities that are admirable and that need to be replicated. Even when we look at these examples from the past, perhaps we could think of the later years of the Roman Empire, which no longer persecuted Christians as they had done for hundreds of years and and rather made Christianity the the actual official religion of of the empire. Uh, Whether we look at the country of Switzerland and, and Zurich in particular, under the reform of the magisterial reformers like John Calvin. Whether we look at the early years of the American colonies under Puritanism that was largely dominated by the influence of Christianity. Even these examples that we could point to and say that there were many things that were commendable about them they all, of course, still had their flaws. None of them had reached perfection. None of them were heaven on earth. Every culture does have sin, has flaws. Because, of course, every culture is made up of sinners. But there are times, of course, when you can look at a particular culture You can look at a particular society and what you see is not just a generally healthy society with certain areas that are in need of improvement and reform. No, what you see is a society that is decaying at every single level. You see the degradation and perversion of everything that used to be considered sacred. You see the rise of what the late sociologist and cultural commentator Philip Reif called death works. Reif defined the concept of death works as an all-out assault upon something vital to the established culture. It's a piece of artwork, or it's a movie, or it's a song, or a piece of poetry, or a book. It's a work of some kind that is generally reflective of the moral values of a society. But but with a death work, the art form doesn't reflect or even shape a culture. Rather, the death work is designed to undo and pervert the deeper moral structure of that society. Pornography is an example of a death work. Carl Truman, commenting on this very example, said that pornography certainly promotes lust 
and the objectifying of the participants, but it also has a much deeper problem. As a death work, it repudiates any notion that sex significance beyond the act itself. And therefore, it rejects any notion that it is emblematic of a sacred order. In other words, it is a complete perversion of the good gift that God has given to husbands and wives. And it is a shameless flaunting of the sacredness of the human body made in the image of God. We see also in our society the rise of things like cross-dressing where men and women intentionally attempt to confuse their gender by dressing as the opposite gender. This too is an example of a death work. The perversion of anything and everything that was once considered sacred. God, of course, has made men to be masculine. He has made women to be feminine. And both of them to rejoice in the way that God has made them. But in this death work, there is a repudiation and a corruption of that higher moral order that God has established. We could, of course, name many, many more death works in our own society, but the point is that when these death works increase, when they become more and more prevalent, what Rife, who was not even a Christian, argues, and rightly so, that this is a sign of a society's collapse. This is the outward evidence of its decay. Now, in our passage that we're looking at this morning, Zephaniah is also describing the collapse of a society. Only, of course, he's not speaking here from the vantage point of a sociologist. He's speaking here in the office of a prophet. He's pronouncing divine revelation. And in this passage that we're looking at, he's, in effect here, writing a dirge. He's writing a a funeral song that is to be sung in mourning. And he's mourning here over the death of his very own nation. And he's describing in this dirge the reasons for Judah in particular for her collapse. And in many ways, it is because of the same kinds of things that we see taking place within our own society. There are things which can happen to any society. But when they do, if that society does not repent and reform its ways, it will collapse. And the collapse of that nation will not take place 
as a matter of simple inertia. That it's just sort of a natural cause and effect. It won't collapse because of certain political mistakes that are made here and there. No, it will collapse ultimately because it has come under the judgment of God. That's the ultimate cause. All of the other things that we could point to, a bad politician here, a bad law that's made there, are just surface level issues. When these things that Zephaniah is describing as taking place in Judah and among all of the other nations, when they grow prevalent among a people, it brings that people under the judgment of God and its inevitable collapse is ultimately due to the judgment of God against sin. And so what happened to Judah and what Zephaniah describes here is is really instructive for us. It should help us to be able to rightly diagnose the ills of our own society and understand where we are, to, to be able to understand the times that we are living in. And as we find at the end of our passage, it should also point us in the ultimate direction of our hope. What is, as we, as we live as sojourners and strangers, if you remember as we went through the book of First Peter, the very real reality that Christians living in a godless land are exiles, strangers, aliens. How are we to think about the nations that we live in and how are we to ultimately have any kind of hope for the future that is to come? These are some of the things that I want to consider with you this morning. So let's begin by thinking together about the things that lead to the decay of a society. And then we'll conclude by considering what at least one of the responses should be. Of course, there are many different responses, but we will just look at this final one in verse 8. Now, first of all, we see in the case of Judah that the collapse of a nation begins with the rejection of the Lord. The, the wholesale, in large part, the, the vast majority of people are rejecting the Lord. And we see this beginning in verses 1 and 2. Zephaniah says here, beginning in verse 1, he says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. And if you remember from from last week, from chapter 2, chapter 2 ends with a pronouncement of judgment against the northern pagan empire of Assyria. So look with me again at chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, and he, that is God, will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And then, just a couple verses down in verse 15, he says, this is the exultant city that lived securely 
that said, and then notice here, that said, in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her, again referring to Assyria, kisses and shakes his fist. And then, immediately, we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. Now, now as as we read this from the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3, it would be reasonable then to think that Zephaniah is still here speaking about the Assyrians. Right? All throughout the passage, he's been referring to her, the Assyrian Empire. And then here again, he speaks of her as rebellious and defiled. But then, when we come to verse 2, it's as if we're, we're being stopped in our tracks. We're, we're stunned. We're to be shocked at, at what we're hearing. We discover immediately this rebellious, defiled, oppressing city is none other than the city of Jerusalem. The so-called people of God. And we discover that this is the case because Zephaniah indicts her for, notice, not trusting in the Lord and not drawing near to her God. This this is not something that could be said about the Assyrians. The Lord was not her God. The Lord was not the God of the Assyrians. And and not because He somehow did not sovereignly rule over them. We've, We've seen all throughout the Bible, and I'm always reminded of that pivotal chapter in the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, where God clearly demonstrates His sovereign rule over the mighty empire of Assyria. No, no. The Lord is not the Assyrian's God in the sense that He has no rule over Him. No, He's not their God because He had not entered into a covenant with Him, with them as He had done with the people of Israel. That's how for the Israelites, for the nation of Judah, here, God is referred to as her God. The one that that they had entered into a covenant with. So Zephaniah here is speaking now about the city of Jerusalem. She is the oppressing city. And this surprising change subject from the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3 functions almost like Nathan's prophecy against David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you remember there when, when Nathan exposed David's sin with Bathsheba and his subsequent murder of Uriah, Nathan comes to David and he tells him this parable about this rich man who stole this poor man's lamb. And when David hears about it, how how does he respond? David says that man needs to be put to death. 
He's done something unrighteous. He's done something wicked. He's stolen that man's lamb. And as soon as he says that, Nathan turns to David and says, you are the man. Something David was not expecting. His own sin is being exposed. And this is, in essence, what Zephaniah is doing. He's been describing so far at the end of chapter 2, the corruption of the Assyrian Empire and all of their ungodly ways that deserve judgment. He's dragging his audience along. He's getting them to affirm, yes, this wickedness that you've just spoken of, this deserves judgment. These, These Assyrians are full of pride. They're bloodthirsty. They're killing everyone. They deserve to be judged. And then now in chapter 3, verse 2, Zephaniah brings down the hammer on the city of Jerusalem. And he says, in effect, you are the man. You are the city. There was no noticeable distinction between the nation of Judah and the nation of Assyria. They were just as corrupt Their culture, the culture of Judah, the culture of the people of God should have been a higher and better and more righteous culture than the pagan nations. They were called to be a light in the midst of a dark world. But now, they were just as wicked, if not more so, than the rest of the nations. And why was this? What led them into all of this sin, all of this idolatry, all of this wickedness? Well, at the root of it was their rejection of the Lord. Again, in verse 2, Zephaniah says, she listens to no voice, meaning the voice of God. She accepts correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Interestingly, Philip Reif argued that what precedes a culture descending to a point where they are producing provocative, morally perverse death works is the rejection of any sacred order. And here... For the nation of Judah, that sacred order was the law of God given to them by the Lord of creation. They had His divine revelation. They knew His will. They knew His warnings. They knew His promises. They had His covenant that told them If you break my laws, you will come under the curses of the law. Your womb will be cursed. Your land will be cursed. And I will bring other nations against you to cast you out of the land. They had the prophetic word that warned them of curses, and they had the prophetic word that gave them promises of blessings to come if they but sought the Lord. 
And what did they do? They said, we don't need it. Yahweh is not God. He's not any different from any of these other gods. We'll worship Baal, too. We'll worship Molech. We'll offer our children as sacrifices to these gods. There's no problem with that. And friends, in, in the same way, we have largely as a society done the same thing. We have a long history of many, many, many Christians in this land. But by and large, what we, not just as an American people, but even as Christians have done, is that we've bought into the lie that there is a way in order to live faithful to God by embracing secularism. We can remove any notion of the Lord out of everything. Whether that be schools, whether that be government, laws, family, everything. And we think that this actually makes for a more just and free society. Now this is what it makes. It makes a culture and society that thrives in producing death works and perversion. It, it's idolatry. And the inevitable consequences of idolatry is being handed over in judgment. We read about this in Romans chapter 1 just last week. When we exchange the worship of the Creator for the worship of created things, part of God's judgment against us as individuals and as entire nations is to give them over to that perversion of sin. And so what it produces is more and more evil in the land. That's what happened with Judah. And that's what Zephaniah was warning them about. Now this leads also to the second evidence of a collapse of a nation, which is the corruption of the civil order, what follows from the rejection of the Lord. In verse 3, Zephaniah speaks of Judah's rulers here, and he says, her officials within her are roaring lions. And when you think of a roaring lion, one of the things that comes to mind is the merciless killing of prey. I remember when we were in Malawi just a month or so ago, we went on the the safari, one of the things that I remember seeing was this hippo that had been killed clearly by a lion, but it hadn't been eaten. Like it, its stomach had been torn up. You could see its guts nastily hanging out, but it hadn't been eaten. And I was asking the, the guide about it, like, what, why, is this, why has this happened? Because you, you had you know, bones and totally devoured carcasses lying everywhere else from where the lions had eaten. Well, he said, sometimes they just like to kill for fun. That's like these officials here. That's what they are. As roaring lions, they have no mercy towards the innocent. They have power and they have no concern for truth and justice. They wield the sword of the state simply because they can. Likewise, he says, her judges 
are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. And of course, the idea is the same. Every aspect of Judah's civil authorities had become corrupt. We read about this also earlier from Micah chapter 3, where Micah says that the rulers detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. They build iron with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity, and they give judgment for a bribe. There are no higher moral principles or sacred orders that guides these kinds of rulers because they have rejected the Lord. And therefore, the only thing that guides them is power, money, and control. Now, I know that people like to say that all politicians are corrupt, right? but this isn't actually a statement of fact. It's more so a statement of despair. It's a statement that is made when so many politicians have become corrupt. And certainly it is the case that there may be temptations that politicians and rulers face by virtue of their office, but it does not follow that rulers are necessarily going to be corrupt. What corrupts rulers is the same thing that corrupts anyone. It's a rejection of God either on a personal or on a societal level. Because you may indeed have, of course, rulers reject God personally, but because a society in large part believes in God or at a minimum believes in a higher sacred moral order, this itself serves as a check against the corruption among rulers. But when everyone rejects God, when they do as our own society has done and has concluded that God is not necessary for anything and that He can be separated from the laws of the state as secularism wants, There are no checks against corruption. It's just power versus power. That's what everything is reduced to. And therefore, what results is the increase of rulers who act like nothing more than roaring lions and devouring wolves. Now, note also a third sign of the collapse of a nation, which is the profaning of religion. The profaning of religion is the third sign we see here. We see this in verse 4. Zephaniah says of Judah, her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Here, all of the men who hold religious offices are corrupting those very offices. The prophets are essentially being described as prideful liars. They can't be trusted. They're supposed to be those 
speak the word of God with authority in all of its truth. They are to teach the whole counsel of God. They are to warn sinners against sin. And they are to bind up the brokenhearted. They're to be watchmen who warn of the dangers of turning away from the Lord. And they are to be shepherds who guard the sheep from wolves. But instead, these men walk around in essence with their heads held high in pride. They use their offices for their own personal gain. They tell the people what they want to hear as long as it benefits their own pockets. And they terrify others only when those others are not giving them what they want. Everything is for their own gain. And we see here that the priests are no better. They're responsible also for teaching the law of God, for administering the sacrifices, and for guarding the temple, and ensuring that it remains a holy and pure place of worship. And yet we know from many places in Scripture that the priests were primarily responsible for introducing idolatry into the temple of Jerusalem. Those who were supposed to be leading the way were those who were leading the way away from the Lord. In other words, these men were supposed to be the moral conscience of the nation were actually leading the way in searing the conscience of all the people. They were not men who were pointing people to the Word of God, calling them to full submission to it, leading the way and proclaiming, thus says the Lord. No, the Word of God had become to them nothing more than old platitudes. They were random verses or theological statements ripped out of context and used only as a justification for sin. I'm reminded as I was looking at this passage this week of, of Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4, where Jeremiah there was warning the people of his day not long after Zephaniah. He was warning the people not to trust in the deceptive words being uttered by the religious voices of the day. And, and, and what was it? Say that they were saying that he recorded that he the Jeremiah 7 verse 4 that he, these religious people were saying, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. And, and what they meant by this statement is that the very presence of the temple was an outward symbol that God was in their midst. That God was pleased with them. That God was blessing them. As long as the temple was standing, they were in favor of God. It was a statement, of course, that had an element of truth to it in that the temple did represent the presence of God with His people but only if His people were keeping the law. Only if they were 
maintaining the temple as a holy place of worship. The priest had severed the temple from the law of God and were therefore proclaiming a theological truth without a proper theological context and comforting people with that twisted phrase in order to keep them in sin and to give them false words and false hope. And friends, this is what happens sadly in so many pulpits today. The Word of God is nothing more than a book of randomly collected proverbial sayings and a few cute stories here and there. Our preachers are not preachers. They're stand-up comics. They're court jesters. They're therapists. They're businessmen. They're storytellers. They're TED talkers. They're concerned with crowds. They're concerned with giving messages that people want to hear already with a few random Bible verses thrown in here or there. I remember when we first moved here, I had the unfortunate experience of attending the annual local association meeting. I know it's not very Baptist of me to say this, but I don't recommend it. I remember going there, and one of the things that still stands out in my mind is, is that what was going on is we're giving out awards. We're giving out plaques. You get a plaque. You get an award if you've had a, the most amount of baptisms in Warren County. You get a plaque if you've had the highest percentage increase over the last year. You get a plaque. You can hang that up in your office, Pastor. This is your praise. We're we're saying all of this. We're, We're giving these awards for things we have no control over. And I remember, I, 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 was, I was thinking, I was, I was struck, and I was even thinking about it this week, the, the contrast between what we were doing there and what we find in Scripture. I mean, you have on the one hand someone like the Apostle Paul saying to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 14-17, to 17, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in My name. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. He says this not because he's against baptism, but because baptism was being distorted among the Corinthians. Or you have Paul saying in the very same letter, just a couple of chapters later, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servant through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. But you have this on the one hand. I'm not anything. The Apostle Paul says, I'm nothing 
Apollos, known as being a great, eloquent speaker, he's nothing. It's only God who deserves the praise and the honor and the glory. You have that on the one hand, and then you have us on the other hand. Here's your award. You're something. Aren't you amazing? Look at all these baptisms you've done. No, you haven't done that. If there has been any conversion, if there has been anyone who has truly come to the Lord and you baptize them, it is a work of God, not a work you've done. And you praise Him and Him alone for it. If you want your awards now and you want your plaques now, you will receive no reward when you come to stand before the Lord. This, friends, is a profaning of religion. It's a profaning of Christianity and the gospel. And it's these kinds of things multiplied to an infinite degree that turn the sacred order of a society into a joke. And it's a sign of the moral decay of a people. Lastly, we find that the nation of Judah was also hardened against the many warnings of God. To put it another way, they were so blinded by sin that they were unable to see and to discern the warnings before them. This is what Zephaniah speaks of in verses 6-7. to Here, God is speaking directly now, and He says, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. All the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. The point that God is making is this. He had brought judgments against many other nations. You could think of the judgments that He sent against Syria. You could think of the judgment that He sent against the Egyptians. You could even think of the judgment that had come in the more recent past that Judah would have been intimately familiar with. The judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel for doing the very same things that Judah was doing now abandoning the Lord and embracing idolatry. God had destroyed all of these nations in judgment. And He had spoken through His true prophets and stated that the downfall of these nations would be the result of His hand of judgment against them. And Judah was supposed to heed these messages. They were supposed to recognize based on what they're seeing in light of the Word of God and hearing from the prophets that all of these collapsing nations is what's going to happen to us if we go the way of the nations. And yet, they did not heed the warning. And we are told that they were all the more eager to corrupt their deeds 
They couldn't recognize that their collapse was the result of their sin. And again, it's not unlike our own society. You know, we promote promiscuity. We promote and we glorify violence. We, we consider it a virtue that our schools and our, our state is secular and there's no God to be found. There's no need for God. We consider it a virtue that the church should never mix with the state. That the principles and values and ethics of Christianity should never have any influence over any of our laws. No, you just you keep that, you keep all your beliefs to yourself, and you let us make the laws according to our values. You don't, you don't bring that into the public square. And then we wonder, you know, as all these things are happening, we, we wonder why are our families in such disarray? But why is there so much fatherlessness and broken homes? Why are our schools' performance so poor? Why are there so many children acting in school as if they're possessed by demons? What's happening? Why is our society becoming so divided? Well, I don't know. But if I had to guess, I might suggest it's at least in part because we're not heeding the warnings. We live very clearly in a Romans 1 kind of world. We live very clearly in a world that mimics Sodom and Gomorrah. That's our land. And we're not heeding the warnings of what happens when a nation and a people descend to that level. We are rather pretending and trying to live as if we've established our own utopian kingdom of Babel. And we forget what happens to Babel. God comes down and confuses the people in judgment. And what has happened for so many years now is total confusion as an effect of the judgments of God. All of man's efforts as he lives in rebellion against God will be brought to nothing. We can have the greatest concepts. We can have the greatest ideas on paper. But if we reject the Lord, they will amount to nothing. So what are we to do? What are we to do when we live in this kind of society and when we witness the moral decay of a nation what are we to do? What, what was Zephaniah to do as he lived in the midst of a people he knew was under the judgment of God? And certainly there are all kinds of things that we could do to work towards the reformation of a decaying society. And this begins, of course, in the home. It begins in the church. It begins in prayer. 
and in our own spiritual lives, there are all kinds of things that we could sort of outline as things to work towards on earth. But I want to just conclude by focusing this last verse, which points us to our ultimate hope. This is not a denial or a statement that there is nothing to be done on earth except to weep and lament in despair. But this verse, I think, focuses our attention on the end of the story. Our response to a decaying society is not to be despair. It's not to be cynicism or bitterness or anything like that. Our response ultimately is to be a people who trust in the ultimate justice and righteousness of God. So in verse 8, you'll look there, the Lord speaks again. And here, He's addressing those who back in chapter 2, verse 3, are the humble of the land. Those who, who seek the Lord. And He says this, Therefore, wait for Me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. That is, all of these wicked nations. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Do you see what God is pointing us to here? He points us to other things in other places, but here, what is He pointing us to? He's pointing us ultimately to the final judgment. And He's telling us to wait for Him. He's calling us to hope and trust in the day when God Himself will put an end to all sin. Again, there are certainly things that we can do to work towards reforming a society and reforming the church. And that would require another message altogether. But here, God is pointing His people not to the improvements that we can work towards on earth, but to the day God Himself in His righteousness will rid the world of sin. This is a promise He makes. This is something His people are to wait for. It is coming. It will happen. And friends, if we know anything about how the story of redemption unfolds, we know also that the resurrection of Christ is the ultimate sign of this coming day of the Lord where He rids the entire world of sin and death. The Bible teaches us that when Christ was raised from the dead, God giving assurance to all that He has fixed a day on which He will judge all nations by one man, Christ Jesus. It was not only a demonstration of Jesus' victory and power over the power of sin, 
which is death. But it was also a signal to the world that death will not reign forever. And that sin, which so permeates the nations, will not continue on forever. For a day is coming when in the same way that Christ was raised from the dead, so also will all who are united to Him by faith be raised from the dead. And that very same Christ will bring judgment against all ungodliness and wickedness. This is God's ultimate witness to the world. That though you see sin now, and though there is sin in your own life now, this is not how history will continue. We know the end of the story. We know what its conclusion is. Zephaniah knows what the conclusion is. And he's speaking to all of God's people, the humble of the land who seek the Lord. And he's telling us all, the day is coming when wickedness will not dominate any longer. And what does he tell us to do? Wait for it. You wait. You hope. You trust. You believe in the promises of God. They may not come in your generation. They may not come in your grandchildren's generation. God is gathering a people for Himself from all the nations. As we continue chapter 3 next week and the following week, we will see that in this future day that Zephaniah speaks of, He will also purify a people from him, for Himself from the nations. God is gathering His people even now. But once they have all been gathered, He will establish everlasting righteousness in the land. And that's our hope. That's what we look towards. And so friends, our call today is not again to despair, not to grow bitter or cynical. Our call from this Word is to wait on the Lord and to trust in Him and trust in His promises. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for Your Word. We are grateful for Your many promises. And we are grateful that You are a just and righteous God. That as a holy God, You cannot look upon sin and be pleased with it. It must be judged. And we are grateful, Lord, that You have given to us Your Son to bear the punishment that we deserve for our sins so that we may be saved from this judgment to come. And we are grateful as well going forth. You are drawing Your people to Yourself who likewise have been bought by the blood of Christ. We've seen this morning we are grateful in the hope of the promise to come, the inheritance that we will receive, a day it will come when heaven and earth will be joined together and righteousness will flourish in the land. And we pray. This all in Jesus' name.